0: This is the Unity Community of Central Oregon podcast. So I titled the talk for today as Rome versus Jesus. Ta-da! <laughs> because it's important you you cannot understand the story of Jesus and the importance of Palm Sunday, the, um, the crucifixion, the resurrection, you can't understand that outside of the context of Rome. It would be like if I said to you, oh, there was this minister from Alabama, and he led a bunch of people over a bridge, and you'd be like, yeah, <laughs> so? because you wouldn't have the context of the whole civil rights struggle, which is what makes that story powerful. So Rome, you have heard, of course, of the Roman Empire. It was, and you've heard maybe of the Pax Romana, that it's Latin for peace, the Roman peace, and so, That was what Rome was interested in, was peace. But their way of achieving peace was a way of domination. So they would come and they would conquer lands. And when they did it, they had several strategies that they would use in order to keep the peace. One is they would put puppet kings in place So you've heard of King Herod. He was a puppet king. They had local governors who were over certain jurisdictions. You've heard of Pontius Pilate. He was a local governor. They ruled with an iron fist and brutal reprisals. And there was some degree of religious freedom They could worship their own gods. At least the people in Israel had negotiated that deal. They were able to keep their god as long as the leaders made sure that taxes were coming and the peace was kept. So that was the deal with them. In the first century, there was a tremendous amount of violence that was going on. There was the violence that was institutional and structural, which probably will sound a little familiar to us in our time. They, <clears throat> there was economic and taxation policies that deprived peasants of their ancestral la- land and kept them very poor. They, they resorted to being um, just kind of traveling artisans or beggars, they were in extreme poverty. Um, they were tenant farmers, day laborers. So that was their situation. There were money changers in the temple. You remember that story about Jesus comes in and throws over the, the temple um, tables? The money changers were, in <clears throat> at that time, you had to offer an animal sacrifice in order to, for different reasons, that was part of the Jewish ritual. And in order, <coughs> in order to get a pure animal, you had to buy one at the temple. And you couldn't pay with Roman currency. You could only pay, <coughs> excuse me, you could only pay with um, the Hebrew coins. But at that time, Roman currency was what everybody was using. So they had to go and change it. So just like when you travel to a foreign country, you have to change your money for the money that is being used there. That's what they did. And guess what the exchange rate was? High. (laughs) And it was all designed to make money. So some of it they had to pay to the Romans, but the rest they were keeping. and so that's what Jesus was upset about, was that exchange rate. <clears throat> they, um, there were social bandits, thank you. There were social bandits that robbed the Romans and also the wealthy Hebrews. And that was kind of like a Robin Hood thing, but it still was happening. There were armed revolutionary movements so the zealots were a group. Um, maybe you've heard Simon the Zealot or John the Baptist. These were zealots, and they believed that they had to overthrow the Romans, that they were an unjust government, and they needed to use military means to do it. Um, in 4 BC, King Herod died, and his son split his kingdom in, in three, and they were in the sense that they were now going to be the puppet kings in those three areas. But um, there was a lot of violence that went on at that time because people, much as they didn't like King Herod, they didn't like his sons either. And it was just a time when there was a lot of um, uproar. There was a town, Sepphoris, that was about four miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up and Sepphoris had an uprising, and so the Romans, exercising their swift and brutal reprisals, came in, they burnt the whole town to the ground, and anybody who survived that was carried off as a slave. So you can imagine growing up in Nazareth as Jesus did, they'd heard about what happened four miles away in Sepphoris. So, that was a consciousness that was happening in the town. You know, imagine if something like that happened here, and like, oh, over in Redmond, you know, they got a little too uppity there, and the whole town was raised, and those people were enslaved. We'd be here in Bend, we'd be thinking a little bit differently, knowing that that could happen. So that's what was going on at that time. Um, so, all through the first century, violence is continuing to simmer and people are looking for their opportunity to overthrow this government, always. So now comes the week before Passover, and this is a major week when people are showing up in Jerusalem. and. Every week, so Pontius Pilate, he's the governor, but he's not living in Jerusalem. He's living in a place called Caesarea, which is a seaside resort. And that's where he spends his time and governs from there. But every year, the week before Passover, when he knows there's gonna be extra amount of rabble rousing and, and potential for violence, he gets all his troops and they come marching into the city so that they can quickly put down anything that looks like somebody's gonna do something related to overthrow. So when you hear the story of Palm Sunday, that's in the gospels, here comes Jesus and he's riding on a donkey and people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, here comes the king of the Jews. What do you think Pontius Pilate would do if that happened that week? He would squash that in a New York minute. (laughs) That would, it, it just couldn't have happened. It didn't happen. But what it does do, it's sacred story. And so it illustrates the difference between the approach of Rome and the approach of Jesus. So all the things that I told you about Rome, those are facts. That's what happened. They were brutal. There were When we talk about crucifixion, that wasn't just like, oh, let's single out Jesus and crucify him. Uh-uh. That was anybody who did anything that slightly resembled um, Being a, a treasonous, being treasonous, they they crucified them. That was what you got if you were involved in treason against Rome. And there were fields of crucifixes, fields, and people didn't die quickly. They didn't die in three hours. They hung for days. It was brutal. And that's the Roman way. That's how they kept peace, through terrorizing. So now, in contrast, comes Jesus. And although this didn't happen, what the early church was trying to describe when they wrote the Gospels is how do we put the consciousness into a story? And they wanted to show that Jesus was in the tradition of the prophets, in the tradition of the law, that he was holding that up because all of the Gospels are written by Jews. They were still part of the Jewish religion, and they were saying, here is someone who is the culmination of what we've been talking about. And so when they write, and they don't write until a long, long time after Jesus has died. When they write, they're going back to the scriptures and they're pulling out pieces that seem to describe the consciousness of what he represents so that people will understand. And so they talk about in the the scriptures of um, the Hebrew scriptures, there are a couple of prophets in particular. There's Isaiah and there's Zechariah. So Isaiah talks about the suffering servant. And the suffering servant is going to redeem everyone through his own suffering. And Zechariah talks about the shepherd king. And the shepherd king comes riding in on a donkey. And which is where this comes from. So what he's, what they are describing is a different kind of kingdom because people, all through the Hebrew Scriptures and now in the time of Jesus, people are expecting a military solution. And the model they have for military is Rome. So they're looking for a power that can go you know, against Rome and win. And that's what they expect. That's what they think the Messiah will be, is someone who will overthrow Rome and they will once again be independent and have a king like King David in the glory days that will come back. That's what they're thinking. And Jesus comes along and he's saying, my kingdom isn't of this world. This is not where power comes from. My kingdom is within. It's within the heart. It's a change in consciousness. That's what I'm here to teach you. So when we sing, prepare ye the way, after, um, after Jesus' death, when the Christian church was beginning, but it was really, initially, Jew, Jews who were meeting in synagogues, and they were talking about this man, and they were talking about the way. So they were followers of the way. They weren't followers of Jesus. And I think that's where things have gotten so um, confused in our society. We have a whole evangelical um, branch of Christianity that's focused on Jesus and Jesus didn't want to be the focus it was his teachings so follow me is what he said he never said worship me what is the way the way of Jesus was a way of love it was a way of inclusion of seeing every wild soul out there as precious and worthy. We talk about the forgiveness of sins. What that really means is looking at people and don't see them as broken. See them. See the sacredness of who they are. Love them as they are. That's what he was teaching. He didn't need to show up as this big military presence. He represented an outpouring of the divine. Here I am to love. So, Rome versus Jesus. It appears, if you take the short-term look, that Rome won. They killed Jesus. In the year 66, there was finally all of that unrest came to a head, and there was a big revolt. And once again, Rome crushed the Jews. They destroyed the temple. There was never again a Jewish temple. And it changed the whole way the Jewish people did religion. It seems that Rome won. And yet, today, where is Rome? It's a beautiful place to visit, but it's not an empire. Where is Jesus? He has moved into the higher consciousness, into the light. And we'll talk more about that next week with Easter. But, but that consciousness is still alive. That way that he taught is still with us. So let's take it a step further. Let's take it into our lives and out of history. Where is the Jesus in you and where is the Rome in you? So the Rome is the part of each one of us that wants to dominate something, that wants to squash something. Is there anything in your consciousness that you would like to squash? I'd be fine if only I could get rid of this part of me this way that I have of being. Do you ever catch yourself thinking that? That's Rome, alive and well. Thinking that the way to inner peace is through getting rid of something. When you look at the world, do you ever wish you could just wipe some people or aspects of it off the planet. Like, if they weren't around, then it would be so much better. I mean, come on, we do think that, don't we? You know, we we might not ever want to take action on it, but that thought does cross our minds. And that's that Roman dominion consciousness. And so the antidote to that is to bring in The power of the way that Jesus taught, where we stay present with the suffering that is. We stay present with all the parts of us and get curious about where could the good in this be, because the truth is it's wholly good, always has been. Where can we follow the way more fully? There's a beautiful story I told you before about um, this book that I read called Humankind, and I still love this book. And this story is about, it's called Mondays with Maurice, about Laura Schroff and Maurice Masek who had a lunch at McDonald's that changed their lives. So it began with Laura was an executive in Manhattan, about 30 years old. And she's down the streets of Manhattan. If you've ever been there, people are moving, 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 and they're moving fast. And she hears this voice saying, do you have any spare change? I'm hungry. And in Manhattan, like here, there are a lot of people that are panhandling. And we get overwhelmed by the need, and so we ignore it. And that's what she did, and she just went past. But as she went past, there was kind of a... Whoa. He said he was hungry. And she backed up, and she faced him, and he was young, he was just a boy. And she said, would you like to go to McDonald's and get a meal? And he said, yes. And she took him to McDonald's and they had a shake and a burger and whatever else they have there. And, and then afterwards, she took him to, to an arcade and they played video games and he got some ice cream. And they had a wonderful time. And she gave him her card afterwards, and she said, if you ever need anything, just call me. So a few days went by, and she, she didn't hear from him, but she couldn't stop thinking about him. And then it occurred to her, he doesn't have a quarter to go to a pay phone and call me. And so she went back to the place that she'd seen him, and she started looking for him. And she found him, and she said, are you hungry? And he said, yeah, he was. And again, she took him out. Well, this was the start of a routine for them. Every Monday, they would go and eat together. And after a while, she decided it was time to invite him to her home for a home-cooked meal. Now, he he lived in (coughs) public housing. He had parents who were drug addicts, grandmother who was a drug addict. There was no money. It wasn't uncommon for him to go two days with no food. She lived in a high-rise in Manhattan with a uh, doorman. So it was such a different world But she brought him up there, and he felt kind of uncomfortable. And he admitted later that he actually had stolen a box cutter and brought it with him because he he couldn't comprehend that someone would just give to him. And so he didn't know what he needed to be prepared for. But when they got up there, at some point she said to him, we're only going to have this talk once. I think of you as my friend, and I brought you here as a friend. But if something ever goes missing, that will be the end. Do you understand? And he said, you just want to be my friend? And he, it was so hard for him to take that idea in. But he said, okay, deal. And he stood up and he shook on it. So they continued like this for quite some time. She took him um, for Christmas to her daughter, not her daughter, her sister's house, who had several children and they had a big meal and and he got presents. Now the only presents that he'd ever had in his life, one was a joint from his grandmother. And I, I can't remember the, uh, what the other one was, but, it, you know, it was like that was his life. And so he got some presents. And, and afterwards, she was saying to him, what was your favorite part of the day? And she thought that he was going to say um, that his favorite part was the presents or getting to play out on the playground equipment in the backyard. But instead, he said, it was when we all sat in that room around the table. She said, oh, that's called a dining room. And he said, yeah. She said, what was it you liked about that? And he said, well, the food. But everybody talked and laughed and shared stories. And, and someday, I'm going to have a room like that. And so really, the gift that he received was not material. The gift he received that day was the, the possibility of dreaming. He began to imagine a life for himself where he could have a job, where he could have a family, where he could have a dining room table. At some point, she he had come to her on a Saturday, which wasn't their regular day, and he said, I'm sorry, I'm just so hungry, it's been two days since I've had any food." And so she fed him, of course, but she, she had this idea of, all right, let's do, let's do something about lunch, to make sure you have lunch every day. And she, she said, I could give you some money and you'd have to manage it, or I can, we can go to the grocery store and get a bunch of food and I'll pack lunches and every day you can pick it up from the doorman. And he said, could you put it in a brown bag? And she said, well, sure, if that's what you'd like. Yeah, because at school, the kids who bring a brown bag have somebody who cares about them. So... You know, this went on, and he grew up, and he went to college, and he has a family, and he has seven kids, and he has a big dining room table that they all sit around. And his life was changed, and her life was changed. Because as a 30-year-old executive, she didn't have a lot of meaning in her life at that time. And this gave her a purpose. Love is never solitary it's not just for the one who receives. When we step into love, when we pour ourselves out in love and we notice those that are not receiving love, but are every bit as worthy, when we do that, we become more. Our heart expands. We, We step into why we are here. And there's nothing more important than that. And that's what Jesus was here to teach. He was an ascended master walking the earth. He woke up and he woke others up to say this is the way that you find peace. It's not through getting rid of. It's not through dominating. It's not through ignoring It's through loving. It's through being present. It's through paying attention. And that's what we're called to. I want to close with a quote from Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was a Catholic monk, and he's done a lot of writings. Very mystical man. In Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people. They were mine, and I was theirs. That we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being human, a member of a race in which God became incarnate, as if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me now that I realize what we all are, and if only everybody could realize that. But it can't be explained. There's no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. Then it was as if suddenly I saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts, where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. But this can't be seen, only believed and understood. We are all wild, shining souls. And everywhere we look, that is all there is to see. And it isn't just people. It's everything. Everything, everywhere. The divine outpouring that we call life all around us. And we are here love that. It's one love from us to everything. That's the way. Let's follow it.